This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, stackers, two special episodes in one week. I know, pinch yourself, right? Well, the episode on Sunday around the banking collapse, we certainly don't like the reason why we had that episode. But today, a brighter note, we're bringing you episode two of the Stacking Deeds podcast. We're only going to do this again once or twice more. So make sure that you go and subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this podcast, the Stacking Deeds feed, because this is not going to be here for much longer. Uh... Alan and Crystal have really worked hard on the show. Super proud of it. Thank you for all the great notes for episode one. Episode two, even better, right around the corner. Let's go. Live from the back of Ruth the Realtor's stretch down car, it's the Stacking Deed Show. I'm Ruth's part-time mechanic, Doug, and we have a record-breaking show here today, and it has nothing to do with the gramophone I just had to install on the dash. Ever wonder about jumping into the Airbnb and VRBO game? We have the guest for you, because joining us, we welcome the woman who makes Airbnb easy, Lauren Keene. Plus, in our headline segment, there are new records in the Guinness Book of World Records, all in real estate, and none are about restoring gramophones. Plus, we'll ring Ruth's Rotary to answer your questions, and I'll amaze you with my trivia. And now, one guy who might be the broken record of podcasting, it's Joe Saul Cihai. Welcome back to the Stacking Deed Show, Deeders, episode two. Ride shotgun again with Ruth today for a little real estate journey of my own. Going to learn a little bit today about short-term rentals. Can't wait to hear the team talk to Lauren Keene today. Uh, Joseph, I hope you sitting up front is short-term, too. I, I can take a hit, Ruth. All right, guys, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm coming back there. Going to join my real estate buddies here in the... Can you... Um, Crystal, excuse me. Sorry. Oh, Just, gosh. Uh, okay. Excuse hey, me. Alan Corey, Crystal Hammond, how are you guys? Doing awesome. I was just noticing the built-in ashtrays we got here. I haven't seen a Chesterfield or Viceroy cigarette, but in ages. Crystal, I'm not sure that's an ashtray. Uh, are you sure it's not an urn? It, it actually says Uncle <laughs> Robert on it. <laughs> this is going to... It's going to be another faithful ride. Let's uh, carefully set easy, crystal easy, sitting that on the floor. Hey, guys, oh we got boy. a great episode today. Lauren Keene coming by. Alan, you've known Lauren for a long time. Yeah, uh, she's got a great podcast, Adulting is Easy. But uh, really, she's made waves in the short-term rental industry, and it's been great following her career, both 
through her podcast, but on her Twitter feed as well. And Crystal, this is a way different piece of real estate than you've done in the past. Short term, have you ever think about doing Airbnbs? No, um, I do not. But I prefer staying in them sometimes Isn't rather than hotels. Interesting. So maybe, maybe there's a chance that by the end of today's episode, you're more interested in Airbnb investing. Hmm, maybe. <laughs> we've, we've got that. We've got, uh, we've got a great headline. Of course, we got Doug's trivia and more. So, uh, guys, why don't we get into it? Hello, chaps. And now our Stacking Deeds headlines. Cheerio and pip-pip. Our headline today comes to us from the New York Post. It's written by Mary Kay Jacob. Listen to this, guys. No one can stay in the quietest room in the world for more than an hour. Alan, I think you're the one that discovered this headline. Was this because you have kids at home and you just hope for quiet sometime? <laughs> yeah, especially when we're trying to record a podcast. That definitely crosses my mind. Um, and also, I am quite the snorer, I've been told. So, uh, you know, sleeping through the night is also important in our household. So your wife wants the quietest room. Yeah, uh, yeah, she's the most vocal about it for sure. Yes, I don't. I can't blame her. Yeah, I, sometimes I wake <laughs> I myself up snoring. So uh, it, I, I, it, it's true. I hate to admit that I've done that too. I've totally done yeah. that. I'm like, who you the wake hell up is like, that? who said that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's totally me. Crystal, have you ever thought about this? About you know, it's funny that we have this headline about the quietest room in the world. Being a landlord, have you ever really thought about noise? noise? You know, I think about I think about these rental houses where you're in a high traffic area. There's lots of busyness on the street uh, around you. I feel like that is a thing. As a landlord, I have never cons- noise has never been in my equation. And now that I've seen this article, I guess that is something to think about because some people like the hustle and bustle of the city. And then some people like, you know, the get off my lawn. I don't want to see my nearest neighbor. (laughs) Right. And they want peace and quiet, 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 quiet. Like the, was that Yosemite Sam from the cartoons? He would always say quiet, quiet, quiet. I don't remember that part. I re- didn't say suffer and succotash. Wasn't that him? I don't know. Alan, what about you? Just jogged in memory. I did. I used to have in my lease when I have a, a like a duplex that's sort of top and bottom, that the top unit has to have fifty percent of the floor covered in either a rug or carpet. Yeah. Because. I was getting a lot of complaints about footsteps a lot of times, and that seems to have solved it. Because otherwise, if I was doing it myself, I'm putting carpet in, I'm constantly, you know, changing out the carpets, but sort of just making it a tenant responsibility to have a rug covering 50% of the area has worked and, and solved that in a pinch. But it's usually not something I factor in as a cost when I'm evaluating a property, not something that I am taking ownership of as a landlord. There's sometimes things I can't control. I see it quite often in new construction, maybe a, an upgrade if you want soundproofing sheetrock or Ooh. some sort of noise reduction um, within a room. But I can totally see in this as a business expense that I would hype and push as a short-term Airbnb because there's people who oh. just have have those sleeping mm-hmm. you know, requirements. And if you are the, one of the rare ones that have soundproofing, I don't know if I'd go as much as this article where you can... Well, you know, it says that you can hear after 10 minutes, your bones 
crushing and the blood flowing to your heart like that that maybe that's too quiet yeah 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 mary writes in this piece that only very few people have been able to withstand being in the room for a long period of time at most an hour after a few minutes to your point alan you'll already start to hear your own heartbeat after a few minutes after that you can hear your own bones grinding and your blood flowing i'll I'll pass crystal i'm done no thank you yeah that's a no thanks (laughs) Friends of mine, they rented an Airbnb just to shoot a commercial. And that was one of the things they were looking for, that the place was quiet. So there are times when people are renting with certain, hey, I'm going to throw a party. So I hope, you know, the, the, the neighbors don't care. I want the noisy hustle and bustle area. And then sometimes people want, they want quiet just because, you know, commercial or quiet a baby. I don't know. They want to escape. But it depends. Something. I think, Crystal, depends on the room of the house, right? I mean, if I'm having people over, I don't want my kitchen quiet where everybody's congregating. I want that to have like a bustle. There was another piece I saw here. This is from Vox and is written by Julia Bellows. Why restaurants became so loud and how to fight back. And it's funny. I didn't I didn't think about this really before I read this piece. It says no one wants to walk into a mausoleum. Everyone I spoke to for this story pointed out that some level of noisiness in restaurants is intentional, and you can thank recently disgraced celebrity chef Mario Batali for that. And it goes into the, the fact that these great chefs make the restaurant seem louder so that it feels like there's action, there's stuff going on, it's a, it's a good time. It seems like I want my bedroom quiet, but I want my kitchen loud. One of my favorite shows used to be, uh, you would binge watch, uh, what was it called? Jake Tapper's uh, Bar Rescue. Yes. Uh, and oh, yeah. what, oh. Do you remember the Bar Rescue? And, and yes. they would put in artificial like uh, half walls and everything just to sort of squeeze everyone together on the dance floor. So they'd rub shoulders. Mm. Uh, they would make seats uncomfortable so that you wouldn't sit long. You would get up and want to dance and get drinks. Wow. So I, I I totally see it in a commercial sense, wanting to add it. To your point, Joe, you know where where things can get uncomfortable. I was at a nice dinner with my wife, and I just knew everyone could hear our conversation because I could hear all their conversations. And then I didn't want to say anything. Oh. It was just it was just you just hear plates clinking and silverware, you know, <laughs> touching each other. And it was just like, why did we pay for this fancy steak dinner at this quiet, <laughs> you know, area where we can't have a, you know open up and and really have a good conversation. That's fun for me though because I would love to hear the conversations. I'm like, ooh, are they on a? Is this? Are these two people? Did they meet online and they're meeting for the first time? Let's hear what he thinks of her, what she thinks of him. Yeah, I mean, all they, they were fighting? saying was, I, I think that guy's listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> they call, it, they call that restaurant secrets. That's the name. Of the yes. <laughs> to that point, does that mean, guys, that? Uh, I mean, the way we're talking about this, about a restaurant, I start thinking this isn't on the landlord, right? Because in most cases, there's there's some type of a triple net lease going on. There's, you know, or just a straight out lease. The bar owner is not the same person as the building owner. So I would think that outside of Airbnb, if it's an Airbnb, we worry about this, right? But if it's a if it's a commercial building, do I worry about it? If it's a commercial building, that's that's on the tenant who's running their own business to make those decisions for themselves. But yeah, if you're running an Airbnb, you are the business and you own the real estate. And I think you can charge a premium if you add 
noise canceling sheetrock and and you know softening to, of noises and it's blackout dark like we paid extra for my airbnb to have the blackout shades just so people can have that good positive night sleep because you're going to hear about it in an online review if they don't have a good night's sleep and if you can't afford to do that those blackout curtains alan at the very least you do some positive spin in your airbnb description right bustling vibrant neighborhood you write <laughs> which is code for it, it may be loud it's code for walkable to the subway and you, you might hear it uh and oh. high five the passengers as they drive by might be positive spin writing a good description of your airbnb i think is incredibly important maybe lauren may have some some help for us on that i don't know but guys this is my stop time for me to get out ruth if you could pull over here uh have a great rest of the show guys Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Good to see you, Joe. What a pleasure. Hate to see you leave, but I'll appreciate the extra elbow room. <laughs> this is the emergency podcast system. Check the dot matrix printer immediately. Oh, wow, Crystal. Another printout underneath my feet. This is cool. I've got three other Guinness Book of World Records that are real estate related. Let me tell you about these three records. What do you think is the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest time to live in one house? You mean longer than this printer's been under our feet? Hmm, that is a good question. <laughs> that will never get old, by the way. There's a printer under the seat. Let's see. The longest someone's lived in a house, I would have to say 60 years. 60 years? Not quite. This person, Florence Knapp, lived there because she was born there until she died there. So it's at least the human lifespan Plus, more than that, I'm talking about a centurion. 110 what? years was the lifespan of Florence Neff and how long she lived in her one house her entire life. That's crazy. So her parents never got rid of her, huh? She never moved out. <laughs> There's no place like home. There's no place like home. That's got to be her favorite movie. Uh, what is that? Wizard of Oz. Yes. I can only imagine how much clutter is in that house. So... What what are your thoughts on buying homes that are in that condition where there were, you know, there was a person there forever and there's just so much clutter? Like, what do you see when you see something like that? Or have you invested in any houses like that? Oh, no, I turn into an old timey cartoon with dollar signs in my eyes and they start bulging out. Uh, hmm. These are great opportunities to to buy real estate at a discount because typically they've got dated systems. Uh, they need some work, some deferred maintenance. It's not something that someone's going to buy as a primary residence. Uh, it's not a renter ready yet. So typically a property that has this lifespan and maybe has been untouched for a long time, it's an investor special all day. How do you budget for something like that? Or you, you get what you see, you see what you get. Typically the offer is going to be as is because it's heirs mm -hmm. that you're negotiating with. A lot of times they're out of state and they don't even know the condition of the home and they've got other things to deal with, honestly. But, um, you know, you, you could also see a lot of these on the MLS with a real estate agent who's getting market value. These things are, are, are sold at market value because there's so many investors, they'll bid, bid it up to what it's worth until the, those investors can make money themselves. But you can usually do back of the envelope um, sort of numbers based on the square footage and talk to a local contractor. You know, if it's $200 per square feet to renovate a property, this is 1,500 square feet. You can quickly do the math to determine, oh, this is probably what I need to put into it. And once I renovate that, it's figuring out the ARV 
after rehab value. And you just kind of see what comps in the area that are already renovated that those first-time home buyers or primary home buyer, buyers are paying for. And then you can kind of feel out, feel out whether it's worth your effort or not. So how are you finding these properties, Alan? Are you, you going to churches, funeral homes, or how are you finding these? This is what you got to do, Crystal. You have to build relationships with probate attorneys. If you die, your property has to go through probate if you don't have a will. What that means is the court systems have to determine who has the rights to sell this house. Who owns this house now? That is probate. So a lot of these probate attorneys, they're not in the real estate business, but they're helping families through this process. And the last step is we need to sell this property in order to distribute to the beneficiaries. Got it. So this isn't about ambulance chasing or funeral chasing. This is actually about helping those families alleviate a burden. So you are helping out. Yes, it's very helpful. And that's a legitimate business that helps both parties, the buyer, the seller. It also puts a product back on the market that's renovated, refreshed for a new family to maybe live in it for another 110 years. All right. And that brings us to Guinness Book World Record number two. This is an interesting one, maybe one that will never be broken, but it's the largest home built in a converted airliner. 116 square meters was achieved by Adar Punawala in India, where he turned an Airbus A320 into his custom primary residence. That is wow, flying high. That's crazy, I guess. <laughs> literally. That totally, you know, turns my attention to people that do these, you know, off the wall conversions, the van conversion business and the school bus conversion business. I feel like it's been booming. People have been wanting to convert. uh, Well, an airplane, that is my first time hearing about an airplane. But have you had any experience in those fields converting something else? No, I haven't. I don't know about if this I don't believe this airplane (laughs) flies anymore. It doesn't say, but it seems to. Mm -hmm. I hope be, not. Yeah, uh, sort of stationary at this point. And I can't imagine, hopefully they built bigger bathrooms and showers. I can't imagine taking a shower in an airplane. So uh, this would have to be customized for a, a, a very particular person. But I don't see this as a business move. In any case, this is just sort of a rich guy with money and wants to be as eccentric as possible. Another fad or trend, I would say, are the, the shipping containers. A lot of people get prefabricated houses shipped to them, mailed to them. If you buy a piece of uh, land, you can have a a shipping container that's already built, or you can have an empty shipping container and customize it. Are there any special considerations if I'm thinking about that? Typically, you just want to make sure they're fireproof. That's what seems to be the main difference for it to get approved uh, as, as a place that you can live in. If they're not fireproof, you can put fireproof sheetrock to, to, to cover it up. But uh, I don't think there's special considerations. You just have to you know, use local building codes. And what sh- there's no definition of what can be used as a wall. It could be a metal container. It could be a wall. It could be, I guess, an airplane wing here in this case. But I love repurposing and reusing products, and shipping containers are great for that, especially because they're rectangle in shape, which makes for great room mm-hmm. sizes and dimensions. And the third yeah. one, which, Crystal, I'm excited to see you try to break here, is the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest 
home kitchen cooking marathon by an individual. That's right. Ricky Lumpkin II, back in 2018, for 68 hours and 30 minutes, did a marathon live stream of him cooking in his home kitchen. And I would imagine he pumped out some really good food there. Well, the men cook. I like how you said you want me to break the record. Nope, some guy. I could see a guy doing that. (laughs) Well, Ricky was doing it to raise money for children living in Africa. So, yeah, he had a good cause as well. (laughs) (laughs) That brings up a very good point about the kitchen. I know kitchens always give you the biggest bang for your buck in investment properties. Most of the people spend the bulk of their budget on that kitchen. And especially if I'm spending 62 hours or not even in one day, just on average, you can spend that much time in the kitchen in the mu- in one month. So you're definitely going to put those high-end finishes or, you know, any any leftover budget or go over budget. I think the kitchen, the kitchen is definitely the place to go. I spend the most time in my kitchen, in my own house, and I don't cook at all. So, I, yeah, I, I, I align with that. <laughs> Spending money in the kitchen is, is, is well, well received. I don't know why I thought you were going to say bathroom. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Some things I won't publicly declare. We'll link to these three in our show notes. You can get them delivered to your email by going to stackingdeeds.net slash show notes. It's free, and you can unsubscribe at any time. Alan, tell everyone about our guest today. We've got Lauren Keene today coming from the Tampa Bay area of Florida. She's got 12 doors. So this is a mix of single-family homes and multi-family duplexes. I think she's got one six-unit in there as well. But she mixes them up. So some of them are short-term rental. Some of them are long-term rental just to diversify, give her some protection. Mm -hmm. But half of those, those nine that are short-term rentals, paid out $28,843 in just one month. Did you say $28,843? Yeah, I may have to buy some more short-term rentals, Crystal. Let's dig in because this is what (laughs) I want as well. But first, I think we have some trivia from Doug. Hey there, stackers, or should I say deeders? I'm Doug. Ruth the Realtor's Roadside Assistant. Get ready for some real estate madness mixed with a dash of bling today as we continue celebrating Women's History Month. Today's question is a real doozy. Ready? Real estate magnate and hotelier Leona Helmsley bequeathed $12 million to which family member upon her death in 2007? Before you answer, I once met Leona Helmsley. In a dream, I was her chauffeur, of course. But do you know what she said to me? Hope you're not expecting a tip. It's just a dream. That's so, Leona. I'll be back right after I take a quick break to count my change jar so I can tip myself for that zinger. And if you want more jokes, don't worry. I'm here every week. Hello, my name is Fred Foote, and I'm the owner and operator of Fred Foote Contracting. You should call us today because, well, we're going to keep you on your toes. That's right. You never know when we're going to show up. You never know what we're going to charge. And you're never going to know what quality of work you're going to get. That's the Fred Foot Contracting Guarantee. Call today. We may or may not answer. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. 
State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Hey there, Dieters. I'm self-taught home chef and Ruth's part-time mechanic, Doug. Maybe I'd have better luck as a dog food chef because the neighborhood stray has no complaints about my cooking. Well, then again, he barely finished eating that squirrel I gave him. Here's today's trivia question. In 2007, real estate magnate and hotelier Leona Helmsley left $12 million to which of her family members? If you said her son, yeah, no, daughter? Nope. She left it all to her canine, a Maltese named Trouble, making him the richest dog in the world at that time. Speaking of Trouble, let's get back to Ruth's flea-ridden backseat. We welcome short-term rental expert, Lauren Keen. Oh, well, hey, Lauren, good to see you. Alan, this is a really big vehicle. There's a lot of space back here. A lot of space for for you. I mean, I we we cleaned up. You should have seen what it looked like before uh, we we picked you up, Lauren. Are we going to be smoking? Are we going to be using these ashtrays? <laughs> Ruth has told us multiple times the smoke smoking sections in the front uh, now only. So uh, yeah, let's uh, let's keep the back smoke free. It's it's better okay. for the equipment this way. You got it. Well, Lauren, you're great to to join us here talking about your short term rental expertise. Sound like you bought your first property in your early 20s. My husband and I are based in the Tampa Bay area. It did start with that first primary residence. I got a roommate. I had a friend that I went to high school with and we lived together in college as, you know, as roommates. And so when I bought my first house, just moved him in with me. Very natural situation like we had been doing for years and started house hacking that way. Didn't think of it that way, of course, had not heard of house hacking, which is where you own your property and you rent part of it out while you also live there. More traditional way of house hacking is a duplex, buy a duplex, live on one side, rent the other one out. Started that way, got into sales, started once I had some discretionary income, 24, 25, I think is the first time I made six figures, started maxing out my 401k and my Roth. And then there was a little money left over. 
And I don't know why it just didn't occur to me to do a brokerage account. It was like, okay, the rest of this should probably go to real estate. So I started saving up for, you know, the the beautiful home with the high ceilings and the two car garage and the big bathroom and the golf course community. And that's what I did, but I did keep the first one. And so I was 27 when I bought the quote unquote forever home, which I of course don't own now because that was dumb, but I, uh, that's how it started. So I had my first rental property when I was 27 because I kept my first primary. And you've sort of leaned into the short-term rental market, meaning the Airbnbs, VRBO, uh, short-term rental stays. Why that pivot? So it happened sort of by accident. I was looking to house hack and we ended up house hacking in a touristy area And we also actually bought a commercial bed and breakfast. So this was a house with two accessory dwelling units. And it might have been that it was a tourist area or the fact that it was already a commercial bed and breakfast that planted this seed in my head. I was looking to long-term rent. I was looking to buy a house with an above garage apartment to have a long-term tenant. Figured the mortgage would be $1,500, $2,000. The rent would be $1,200. Let me kill some of that bill, right? Which I know you're all about that with your house fire. So that was the thinking. Then we were started doing the math and you make from a top line perspective, probably three times as much as you would with a long-term rental. You naturally have more bills. Three, so you're wow. Three times you make three times as much with short term. That's Oh that's, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, um, our studio apart, our studio accessory dwelling in it, which we call a cottage. It does about especially in peak season like four grand and it's 500 square feet the market rent if it had a washer dryer in it which it doesn't would be like twelve hundred dollars right yeah so, so so you recently did a tweet that outlines how much money you make each month on your short-term rentals remind me how many of them are actually short-term rentals in your entire portfolio nine right now so you have nine and the number is what each month in revenue we did, including the long-term rentals last year with the 12 rentals, we did $250,000. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and so you- in peak season, to answer your question, we're doing thirty to 35000 But what we haven't talked about is we live in them and move around. So ah. we just bought another duplex and we're going to move into the bottom long-term rent the top. So that'll free up all of those units that we were staying in. So the revenue actually should be more this year because everything will be functioning as a true Airbnb and we'll stop moving around at least as much as we do. I forgot the term I came up for this. Was it short hacking? Short shifting. Short shifting. Yes. All right. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. We were trying to figure out what, what to call this, this, this method, short shifting. I like this because you're, you're flexible. You and your husband are flexible. No kids. You've already mentioned, you basically put everything up for rent and then you live or shift to whatever one happens to be vacant that day, that week, that month. How do you do that? It's normally at least a week at a time. So we do have one home that the bed and breakfast that we bought that is we consider sort of our primary home right now. Again, we'll be moving very shortly into that new duplex. We we may have minimum, we have five days head notice that we require and a week minimum. So 
we will not move for anything less than a week. And it really allows us to go to our other our other properties, whether it's a duplex, which we have, which is on the water. So we go take the boat and have the kind of on the water time or we go to our six unit apartment building, which is a couple hours north and check on things there. See my grandma who lives in that county. So we're really flexible. I actually uh, I actually rented everything out by accident last week and we had to go we had to go stay in my mother-in-law's second house she has a vacation rental that was empty so we actually were homeless we closed on the new duplex that day and had nowhere to live it was kind of ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) these are good problems to have lauren you know the signs of success yeah too many properties but they're all rented out i can't i can't i don't know where to live it's peak season in florida january to april man that's when you're making your money so I'm, i'm here for it Folks that are listening, obviously, if they have this flexibility, the short shifting method that where you just sort of shift between the short-term rentals, love it. That's that's just going to print money all, all day. You've obviously mastered short-term rentals. So someone who, you know, I've just got two short-term rentals online myself, and maybe there's some folks listening that this will be their first foray into buying their first short-term rental. What would you say is the top four things that would make or break me as a successful Airbnb owner? The first thing to know about short-term rentals, yes, I do think it's investing in real estate, especially if you own the properties. There's ways to do it where you rent the property from a landlord and then you put it on Airbnb. But especially if you're owning these things, it's a real estate business. It's also a hospitality business. Remember, especially in my case, being in Florida, these are people, sometimes they're coming for vacation, of course, sometimes they're coming for funerals, sometimes they're coming to stay while their house is being built or to look to move to the area. And you're going to be dealing with tons of people in it's been about two years and two months since we started doing this, we've hosted like 400 groups of people. That's a lot of people that you're interacting with on at least a short-term basis. And so the communication is really important. Always having a smile on your face and just really having empathy and an understanding of who these people are and why they're coming and you know facing every day with that in mind. What does hospitality include? Is is that just good email communication? Is that meeting them uh, and putting mints on their pillows? Or sure, I mean it could. Uh, yeah. For me, it doesn't. It, I I'm I'm heavily systematized. That would be probably be number two for me. Is you can get I think burnt out very quickly if you're making gift baskets, if you have a physical key, if you're meeting people to check into an Airbnb. Well, you know, check them in. Well, all of that is very endearing and adorable. And if you want to run your business that way, you feel free. But the systems are what is going to allow you to scale. And actually, it makes a very, in my opinion, very consistent experience for the guests. Every guest that comes and stays with us, they get the same communications. They have all of the same locks. They have all of the same linens. And some of our guests stay in different units of ours and come back. So they're getting a very consistent experience. Certainly, sometimes out of the automated messaging that I have set up, sometimes they call or sometimes there's texting and things like that. But it's just also responding very quickly is the most important thing that I have seen. And also just dealing with issues very quickly. So for example, last night, our guest messaged us that the internet wasn't working. We messaged immediately and said, hey, unplug the router, plug it back in. It That worked. The internet started working again. But they're like very appreciative that you got on something very quickly. Sometimes a Roku won't be working or a battery's dead. And we can tell them, you know, hey, here's where the batteries are. 
If they don't know how to work a thermostat, we say, hey, there's a QR code right next to thermostat, scan that. There's a help video for that. So some of it is, a lot of it, of course, is communication, although a lot of what we do is pretty hands-off and pretty systematized. I spend 20 to 30 minutes on this business per day in season. And again, that's that's with nine units. So that's amazing. Oh, well, that QR code that I haven't seen that. I really like that. That mm-hmm. saves a lot of questions. Yeah, I was going to ask how passive is this, but 30 minutes a day, it, is it disrupting? Because you do have a full-time job. It's not very disruptive. So when I get phone, I do have to answer my phone all the time, basically. If I am on a work call or something like that, I will just do the please text me thing, the automated response. And that normally works. And I also, in the morning, I get ahead of things. So every morning I'm looking at what are the, especially if there are terms and if there are, or if there are just check-ins, I look at all of the check-ins in our property management software, make sure everybody has their welcome information has been sent to them. And I double check, just text cleaners. Hey, we have a turn today in white, white heron, blue heron. How are you set up for that? Hey, text my other cleaner. We have a turnover in acorn cottage. You good? Yep. Everything's good. Just little things like that. It takes very little time, but it means that come four o'clock, the unit's going to be clean. Nobody's going to walk into a unit that their surprise isn't clean and they've all received their welcome information. And I know that the locks set themselves. So everything is good. So once you start kind of getting ahead of things like that, you don't have as many. I really don't have very many surprises. Sometimes people call me like, we're here. I'm like, awesome. But you know, that's, you know, that's pretty rare. And in a lot of places in our emails and in our listings, we say, we're super passionate about this. We want you to come to the nature coast of Florida, which is the West coast of Florida, but we may not meet. And our best way to communicate is text and email. So we kind of set the stage from the beginning that, you know, we're not, we're, we're probably not going to be there to let you in. If I were to buy my Airbnb, am I focusing on super vacation destinations, the prettiest house on the beach? What makes a good Airbnb? You need to understand the market. And there are many tools out there. One is is AirDNA. Another one is literally looking at Airbnb and seeing what's available. What are people getting? How many are there? And if you're kind of considering different areas, check over time. Don't just all don't just check one time and assume that's, you know, that's all the the listings, right? Look at different, look at different seasons, understand the markets, when's peak season, when's shoulder season. I I am on a lot of Facebook groups, for example, and I will ask people questions in there or I will answer them for others. Understanding the market's really important. Having a beach house, sure. Having a four or five bedroom house, great. It, you know, a lot of hosts, I think, are making mistakes where they are buying places sort of for themselves. And they are, they kind of want a free vacation place. And I think that can be very scary to do because I think then you end up in some very congested markets right now. You end up in Joshua Tree, you end up in Destin, you end up in the Blue Ridge Mountains or Gatlinburg. You end up in these areas where it's just very saturated and you end up with these huge homes and you may pay a lot for them. But yeah, maybe you break even throughout the whole year. But had you invested that money somewhere else, would you be cash flowing enough to just pay for that? vacation that you wanted for free anyway. So I have chosen to do the nature coast of Florida. It's where I was born. So I have that kind of asymmetrical advantage where I know the area really well, of course, but I also have picked markets that aren't congested with people. There aren't these huge portfolios that have come in. It's not a lot of professional management. It's a lot of mom and pop, a lot of hobbyists 
And if I can come in with, you know, some business thinking, some personal finance understanding, use my finance degree, maybe, right? If I can do that, then I think I have an advantage in these less congested markets. And uh, from a recession perspective, you can drive there. You don't have to fly there. Our six-unit apartment building, of which four are short-term rentals, it's two hours from Jacksonville, it's two hours from Orlando, it's two hours from Tampa. So we get a lot of local kind of Florida vacationers. And I like that better. That's what works for me than competing in these congested sort of national destinations. I think that's great because I think a lot of people get into that because they want that second home. But you made a solid point there that mm-hmm. yeah, if you don't buy that more expensive property, you can actually make enough money to go rent that beautiful house that you want. You don't necessarily have to own it. Anything we didn't cover yet that sort of will make or break my success in the short-term rental business? Absolutely. You asked about the kind of the four main yeah. things. You know, number one was, you know, it's a hospitality business. Number two was systematizing. We use uh, pricing software. We use locks that set themselves. We use a property management software. And I think honestly, anything two or more units, you should have all of those things. Maybe do the first one, manage natively, get used to it that way. The other one was understanding this, understanding the market, which you touched on would be number three. And the last one that I would add is your reviews are everything. And that goes a little bit with the hospitality of what we were talking about, but the systems really help the reviews too. A lot of my reviews are, of course, the place is great location. I really like walking, right? I like walkability. So the location's great. Lauren's communications were great. The place was clean. Everything was easy. Check-in was seamless. They can get in anytime. They don't have to tell me when they're coming. They can get in at midnight and that lock is going to work for them and let them in. And so your reviews really are everything in this business. And you should be at least averaging, you know, 4.8, 4.9 out of five stars over time. Do you prompt the guests to write reviews how, how do you sort of guarantee that you're going to get a good review or do you just sort of say hey if my systems are rock solid then i, I know i'm going to get that five-star review the platforms whether it's vrbo or airbnb or probably others as well booking.com or floridarentals.com i'm sure they're i know for a fact that airbnb and vrbo are prompting the guests and asking for reviews i do have an email that goes out the day of checkout, I think at 2 p.m. So like they check out 11 to 2. It says, hey, get home safe. When you get home, please leave a review or respond to this email with any feedback that you may have. And we get a lot of really good reviews. And having really rock solid units has helped. When we added our six unit, it was remodeled, I think eight years before we bought it. It was owned by a general contractor. It's in fantastic shape. Our review, I mean, that, that that thing gets five-star reviews all the time. Our camper gets five-star reviews. It's just crazy. But um, yeah, so that helps. And we do prompt and we do get really generally really amazing feedback for people. Is your camper on those sites as well? Or is that a special camping site? Yeah, it's on those sites. It's in, <laughs> it's in our driveway. When we bought the bed and breakfast, there was a mobile home in the backyard. It was really dilapidated. Oh, you should have seen the inspection report. It was terrible. And so we got rid of that and we rolled a camper in instead. We already had a sewage hookup and the power from having the mobile home. So yeah, we just rent our camper out. So it's a stationary camper or do people drive it away? It's stationary. Oh, oh my God. I think my my car insurance would drop me if I let them drive it What what does that rent for for, per night? It depends. We use dynamic pricing software, but peak season between $100 and $120 a night. Off season, like $70. What's the vacancy 
rate on that. A vacancy is pretty high on the camper. We paid $12,000 for it and it paid for itself in the first year, which was good. We're on year three of it. Um, we had one big repair that we needed to be, that needed to be done. Um, but it's, uh, the vacancy on it and probably during season, 50% lot of weekends and then an off season, it doesn't really book, but it's kind of by design. It's not, you know, it's a little more fragile than our other places. <laughs> I love it. You, you, you get every time talking to you, you get me so hyped about short-term rentals. You're the queen of short-term rentals. Where should people follow you and learn more about what you're doing? If you guys like podcasts, which obviously you do, check out the Adulting is Easy podcast is all about making adulting easier by making money easier. That's the premise of Adulting is Easy. It started with me telling my sister about personal finance. It can be found anywhere you listen. I'm on Twitter at Adulting is Easy and throw me a bone and follow me on Instagram at Adulting is Easy Real. Just getting started over there. Lauren Keen, everybody, the queen of short-term rentals. You've inspired me. And now I, I feel like I have to go take a vacation in your neck of the woods. So uh, Come on down. We'll, all right. I'm not going to do the camper, but I'll, I'll do one of the other ones. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, absolutely. Great conversation. I like how she's on the outskirts. So she's about two hours away from the big city. She's established herself as that big fish in the little pond because there's less competition about two hours outside and she's still making the numbers. Uh, Hold on. Hey, listen to that. Oh, I hear the phone ringing. That means it's our last segment of the day. Ring Ruth's Rotary. You want to get that crystal? Hey, Chris on Allen. This is Patrick. Uh, I saw this TikTok and wanted to hear your thoughts. Do you think this is good advice or bad advice? A uh, good deed or bad deed, if you will. You're making $100,000 a year. Here's how you can increase your income by 50%. Build a unique rural couples getaway Airbnb, one unit, two to 500 square feet. We polled the top 1,000 highest ROI Airbnbs in America, and that is the highest ROI real estate asset class that you can get into. So instead of buying a house or buying an apartment, go seller finance some rural piece of property on a sloped lot with a view, put a dome or a tiny home or a tent even, and you could get $150, $200 a night for that thing, and you could generate an extra 50 grand a year, and that extra 50 grand can become the foundation of all of your wealth building opportunities. Oh, wow. That was interesting advice from Travis Chambers. That's a bad deed for me. Number one, I'm not comfortable in, in the building space. I'm not comfortable in the rural area either. I feel like I'd run out of patience because I, I don't want to drive to a rural property if the tent or whatever I'm building is not built already. The way my patience is set up, I don't think I could. I I would be more than happy if they had a tent community or beautiful yurt community and I could buy one of the yurts and there's already someone there to property manage and maintain it. And I'll just be the owner. So you're saying you're, you're a turnkey investor. If someone sets this up in a rural area, they've got the dome or the tent or the tiny home. Then, then you're on board with this advice. Yes. Yes. Cause they've already, they've already gotten the regulations. They've already failed at, you know, time constraints. Cause I can totally see, a snowstorm or some bad weather causing a delay on delivery of materials. I could totally see 
the regulations getting in there or the city or the uh, county and they're like, oh, you don't have the right permits. Let's shut this down. I don't want to go through any of that. I want to sleep peacefully at night knowing that it's already built and I don't have to talk to the city. I don't have to gather supplies and contractors. I, I just want it all finished. A lot of people get into Airbnb sort of investing because they see themselves as being someone who's going to use that house someday. And if, if you're not excited about a 200 square foot couples getaway, you know, in the middle of nowhere, then I get it. it it's, it's tough to put your money there. What I like about it is that rural land is cheap. He offered seller financing. And the reason that you can do that in rural land, because it's hard to sell too. So if you approach the seller and say, hey, I, I need 0% down, I need favorable terms, usually that's fine. There's also USDA loans that are 100% financing. If you can't go the seller financing route, that will pay for this. But you kind of have to make it your primary residence for the first year to use those loans. So this is why I don't like it, because if the Airbnb doesn't work out, then you're stuck with a land that's going to be difficult to sell. Who are you going to flip it to? You can't really pivot. You can't turn this into a long-term rental very easily without spending a lot of money. And there's probably not a whole lot of demand for long-term rental. You can't easily rezone the property. So I like to have options with all my property. So the good deed about this is that, yes, it's probably fairly cheap to get in. You can get some favorable financing terms. The bad deed that I don't like is if it doesn't pan out, I don't have any options to pivot to to make money if Airbnb is not the thing for me or they change the regulations, like you said. I'm more of a city girl, so maybe I'd be a potential customer to come getaway. If I was going to take part in a couple's getaway, I want to go to a big urban city that has a lot to offer and walkability and getting off the grid is not my idea of a vacation. I think actually it would create more fights for, for, for my <laughs> wife and I if, if we had nothing to do and I had nowhere to put all my nervous energy into. And one more point, just think about it. What kind of cleaning fee are you going to have to charge to get this rural place cleaned? Because I'm thinking your nearest neighbor is pretty far away and doesn't like people. That's why they're rural in the first place. So I can only imagine approaching my rural leave me alone neighbor to say hey by the way can we pay you to clean our airbnb once a week i'm pretty sure that wouldn't go well yeah you're not going to have a high pool of applicants for everything so uh there's, there's a lot of a lot of hair on this advice i would say you know it's a, it's a little hairy but uh <laughs> if you've got the team you've got the resources community in this rural area to pull it off i see that it can be profitable and you did bring up a very good, important, important word is team. I don't want to pick up the slack for this particular task. So I'm going to say my team and I, will, we're out. This yeah. is bad deed advice. Just don't take it. I seem to agree with you. This advice applies for a very small sliver of investors who have that rural community expertise and team behind them. But for a beginner, someone new, I agree with this that it's a bad deed advice. Wow, that's a wrap. What a great episode, Alan. This was this was really great. All the show notes are available at stackingdeeds.net slash show notes. And we're also starting our mastermind. So the wait list is open. So head to stackingdeeds.net slash mastermind. That was a great ride. Uh, we've arrived 
safely to the end of our journey here. I learned a lot about short-term rentals, <laughs> but I also do want to piggyback off the mastermind, surrounding yourself with other people doing what you want to do. It's nothing better. I wish I had those mentors when I started out in real estate. I just had books that I found in the library as my mentors, but to actually have questions and guidance, sounds like Crystal, you surrounded yourself with investors to get started and it changed your trajectory. So yeah, that, that's a great thing. And that's why we want to offer it to our audience here as well. All right. Now back to Doug. So what should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from our headline. Noise? When working on your property, think about noise levels and plan accordingly. Nobody wants to whisper in rooms that are supposed to be fun or sleep in a room with loud trucks driving by every 30 seconds. Second, take some advice from our special guest, Lauren Keene. Want to get into the Airbnb game? A little upfront planning will pay huge dividends later. But the big lesson? Okay, Ruth. Even if I get this gramophone installed, you can't keep hitting every damn pothole in the road or it's going to keep on skipping. Earth, wind, and fire sounds like earth. More earth than damn earth again when you're driving. Thanks to Lauren Keene for joining us today. You can find out more about her work at adultingiseasy.com or find her on Twitter at adultingiseasy, which is easy to remember because my Twitter is adulting is very, very, very very hard. Still confused? We'll also include links in our show notes that you can sign up for at stackingdeeds.net slash show notes. And we'll deliver every episode piping hot right to your email. Want more from our hosts? You can say hello to Alan on Twitter at Real Estate Maxi, or just ask your neighbor for an introduction because he probably owns their house. And to say hello to Crystal on Twitter, find her at Condo Crystal. She's your new best-dressed Twitter friend. Details about all of the awesome work our hosts do, you'll find at stackingdeeds.net. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website. Resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life. And Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.